You got 48 hours. Put in the wind. Leave Denver. Go to Rome. Visit the Vatican. Or else, I gotta do you too. What about the others? Buckwheats. Wasn't their fault. They're following my orders. I take full responsibility. You know, a human being, you're a waltz. Oh, you're a miserable band of misfits. Fuck, fuck, beats. Sequel. Re, re, reboot. Which one will it be? It's the Ruined Child Hoof Podcast. Greetings, Starfighters. This is Ruined Childhoods, and we are zipping all around the country covering one movie for each state, celebrating what makes them special, and then imagine how we would extend their legacies given the opportunity. Last week, we're out west in California, and on this episode, we're over in the Centennial State, birthplace of Trey Parker, Lon Chaney, and Pam Greer, death place of Alfred Packer, Hunter S. Thompson, and Doc Holliday. We're in the home of Ball, the jar company. You know Ball. They make jars. Dan, welcome to Colorado. Check out what I'm drinking. Oh. I got myself a, a The nice taste tall of the Rockies there. Coors Light. I'm going to crack it open. Coors Oh, did you hear light. that crack? Oh. Oh, that was a crisp, crunchy crack. I feel like shit. I was talking over it. You're fine, Dan. I can edit you out, and I can solo that and make it even louder. But I will say this. I tried to get a small can. They don't have any. So I had this pint-sized 24 fluid ounces of the Rockies. John, when was the last time, if ever, that you drank a Coors Light? I'm glad you asked me that question because I was trying to think of this, and (laughs) it may have been uh, 20 years ago. Uh, no, I, maybe not. That would mean, yeah, I guess maybe like 18 years ago. Yeah. I was just trying to think about that. And the last time I can remember actually- Oh, it's disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot how it tasted. It doesn't taste like beer. (laughs) No, no. It's, uh, no, it's not good. Uh, um, but it's the only beverage I have this evening. So uh, if I, if you hear me wincing, it's because I'm taking a sip. I mean, the more you drink, the better it tastes, if I remember correctly. Oh boy. So yeah, the last time that I remember drinking a Coors Light in intentionally was, uh, watching WrestleMania 15 okay. in, uh, April, 1999, because that was the beer that Stone Cold Steve Austin would, oh. would drink in the ring. So we got, uh, my friends and I, we were in college and we got Coors Light and drank our Coors Lights uh, as Stone Cold Steve Austin reclaimed the WWF championship from The Rock. Wow. He smelled what The Rock was cooking. And he said, I'd like to pair that with a ice cold Coors Light. Which makes perfect sense based on what The Rock was frequently cooking, uh, according to him. So 
I don't uh, even know what that means. I don't know what it means either, John. I just oh. said it. It just came out. <laughs> and as I was saying it, I was just like, this makes no sense. Uh, you know, but. Wow. Sorry for calling you out on it. Dan, have you ever been to Colorado? I have never been to Colorado. Really? Have you? I have only been once. Uh, it's lovely. I was there for a, like a, a conference uh, and um, I did some stuff with the Denver Art Museum and Denver is lovely. Damn, love Denver Damn that's what they Damn. call it. Damn. Denver is lovely. I mostly enjoyed when I got out of the, like the convention center area and saw more of like the neighborhoods. But it's beautiful out there. I mean, no joke, those Rockies are right there. So How I've in your seen, face. I mean, the pictures are are beautiful and by by all accounts Denver is a a lovely city. I mean, maybe not the account in the movie that we're talking about today, but by all other <laughs> accounts Denver is a lovely city. Yeah. Yeah. I you know watching things to do in Denver when you're dead, the movie of the week on this podcast, I was a little I felt a little let down that there wasn't more. Like it really could have taken place anywhere. Like I I felt like one of my problems was that they created the title of the movie and then worked from there. <laughs> and they just like didn't include more of like Denver culture. I, I they I mean Gabriel Anwar's character is a ski instructor, so that's as like Colorado-y as it gets, really. Yeah, I not not being from Denver. And I was reading some commentary uh online from uh, just people from Colorado and from oh, Denver yeah. talking about the movie. So there are some elements that uh, they mentioned, like, so, for example, one of the songs used in the film, mm. uh, a, a favorite of mine, by the way, Bittersweet by Big Head Todd and the Monsters. OK, but Big Head Todd and the Monsters are a uh, a Colorado, uh, perhaps even a Denver based band. So. That oh, cool. was that that was one of the things I remember seeing was they were like, yeah, you know, if you're from Denver, there's a lot like there's like neighborhoods that he's like five points. I think they definitely shoot on location quite a bit. Uh, there's just a little bit of California mixed in there, but I think that it <laughs> passes totally fine. Just looking at the filming locations, it's just like, OK, this is this is Denver. And I suppose that there's something to be said also about showing Denver in a way that isn't just, you know, look at these mountains. It's more of like, these people have other things to worry about. <laughs> yes, yes. And, uh, you know, it's people with people problems like in any other city. So, um, oh, yeah. They, so they talk about, uh, I was just look, uh, bringing this this quote back up here. So this person who talked about, uh, they're, they're, this is their favorite movie, and they said they named Union Station, the Bluebird Theater, Five Points, uh, Denver Natural History Museum, Lakeside Flatirons. Yeah. So a lot of things that I don't, I would not, I did not recognize, uh-huh. never having been to Denver. But I guess if you're from sure. Denver, uh, this movie probably yeah. has a, a different meaning for you. Well, and that's something that we wanted to capture with this series where we are covering each state is you know what is a movie from the from a state that you know captures a certain element of it that you know makes it kind of special and makes it uniquely you know make sense for that geographical area i realize that it would have been more obvious if we were to have gone for something that's more of like a 
a ski movie that takes place in Colorado. I, I I mean, I'm sure that there's many other things in Colorado. I don't know. Is there anything that takes place at the Coors plant? Well, uh, right. Well, in uh, Golden, Colorado. Well, I'm trying to remember now. We're uh, st- no, Strange Brew is in Canada. Uh, Strange Brew is Canada. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, there's nothing. No, Elsinore. nothing. Uh, skiing. Um, there's. I'm sure there's like the Sundance. Oh, no, that's Utah. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I can't really think of. Uh, of too many things that are closely associated with Colorado other than like elevation, the Broncos. Yeah. Skiing. And I guess like hiking and wilderness. Sure. Camping. Being more of an outdoors person, which, uh, you know, I'm going to do a little synopsis. This movie is very much not about that kind of lifestyle. Not at all. An ex-gangster, Jimmy the Saint, tries to maintain a personal life and new career, but a figure from his past taps him for one last job and Jimmy can't refuse the much-needed payment. But when Jimmy's team of misfits and wild cards botch the job, they're all on the run from an enforcer hired to take them down. The job is simple. Locate a woman who used to date the man with the plan's son, Bernard, and convince her to get back together with Bernard in hopes that it will cure him of his pedophilic urges. It, this is a really hard one to synopsize because uh, it there are people that are just known as the man with the plan or Mr. Shush that it's like they don't it's you have to explain a little bit more. There's not like a quick way to get in and out of it. You're 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 doing fine. Sure. Well, that was essentially yeah, it. That's it. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so so Christopher Walken plays the man with this person who's known as the man with the plan, and we see him, and he is. You know, he's paralyzed. He is in a, I think he's a quadriplegic and he's in a wheelchair. He has survived. He has survived an assassination attempt. Right. That, yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, we're seeing him after, you know, at this later stage in his life, whereas before, you know, he's a major crime boss, an organized crime boss. And he still has a lot of power and influence. Uh, Jimmy the Saint, who's played by Andy Garcia, Jimmy owns this business where he has people who are at the end of their life and they're giving advice to their survivors. And uh, this business is in financial trouble. And what Jimmy finds out is that the person who had kind of given him the loan for this business was financed by the man of the plan. So he's kind of owned by him. And uh, when the man with the plan's son, Bernard... You know, the film opens with him going into a schoolyard and trying to, you know, approach a young girl and then becomes physically, you know, aggressive with her. He quickly gets taken down and the, the, the girl calls him like a dummy or something like that. She's like, just calls him like an idiot. And it's just like, hell yeah. What a cool, what a cool girl. who's <laughs> just like, get out of here, you dumb idiot. Right. Well, and it is uh, implied more with the performance yeah. that uh, the man with the plans uh, Ber- that Bernard does have some type of like mental ill mental uh, sure. disability. Well, we also do see him uh, unprovoked beat uh, somebody who's sleeping on the street. Yeah. And uh, we can assume that he beat him to death. I, I don't know. It doesn't show that much, but it, he clearly has these issues. And Christopher Walken's character believes that if he can somehow get this guy's old like high school sweetheart that he was with for like seven years, like back with him, it'll snap him out of this thing that has, that's going on in his head, which is absolutely ludicrous. 
Which is totally in keeping with most of the logic in this movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So uh, Jimmy has a uh, a group of, uh, you know, friends who uh, he wants to kind of bring on to this job to, um, you know, get them some money too, because he can split the money however he wants. And he's a giving guy. He's a very generous guy. And he wants to make a better life for his friends who, you know, they all served time some t- together. I think that they, you know, used to do a-, a lot of these jobs in the past. And then, you know, a lot of time has gone by and, uh, you know, they all definitely serve time. And, uh, those, you know, we have Christopher Lloyd who plays, uh, somebody who runs a projection booth at a porn theater. Uh, we have William Forsyth who plays kind of like the most normal of them. He's more of a family this man. He stand up guy, the most stand up guy. guy. Of them, he runs a trailer park uh, with his family. Bill Nunn uh, plays Earl Easy Wind Denton, and you know he's a bit of he's a little hot tempered, but you know he's generally well liked. But then there's Treat Williams's character, Critical Bill, who is a complete wild card, and he is a mess. He's an absolute mess. Yes, I, when I, we first see him. He is using a dead body as a punching bag because he works at a mortuary. Yeah. He's, it's every, you know, twisted stereotype in the book, including. Uh, I just took a swig of the Coors Light. Uh, including an accusation that uh, Bill Nunn's character continues to, uh, you know, make in, in that uh, Treat Williams character, uh, Critical Bill that he is a quote-unquote fecal freak from his time in prison. Right. That's another issue that I had with this movie is that I feel like it is homophobic to the point where I don't feel like the film disagrees with what they're saying. No, no, no. All right, are are we just going to start like, all right, I'm going to put all my cards out on the table here. Go for it. I, I don't like this movie. Okay. I, did, I did not like it when I first saw it on on VHS as uh as I was, you know, eagerly taking in all of the pulp fiction clones. And, pulp fiction and reservoir dog. And clones. and res, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah and reservoir dog. I'd dogs. say this is more of a reservoir dog clone. I would say it's a little bit of both because you've got the man with the plan who is almost a Marcellus Wallace type figure more so than the, um the 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 boss in Reservoir Dogs. You think so? The wealth uh the okay. the people at his command. The boss in in Reservoir Dogs just had like a regular office and met with guys sure. in a in a yeah. coffee shop which and then we'll, we'll get into all of the quote unquote gimmicks here. So, okay. but yeah, Reservoir Dogs, but Tarantino, it is a, it is a early Tarantino ripoff because at this point, that's all the Tarantino features that there were, were Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Yeah. But you've got, I see Jimmy the Saint as a like Vincent Vega knockoff, except that he's trying to go, he's, he's trying to go legit. He's sure. trying to get out of life, life of crime, which is not Vincent Vega, but He's Andy Garcia. He's got the slick back hair looking very much like Travolta in Pulp Fiction. Well, I mean, but that's also just kind of the Andy Garcia look. It is the Andy Garcia look. Yes. Uh, but it does. But it 
it does very much call to mind that uh, John Travolta, Vincent Vega appearance. The gang of of criminals, including the one, you know, you've got Critical Bill in this, and then you had Mr. I think it was Mr. White was Michael Madsen's character. Michael Madsen's character. We could just say Michael yeah. Madsen's character. Yeah, yeah Michael Madsen's yeah. character. <laughs> uh, you even have a character in this called Mr. Shush, played by right. uh, the man formerly Steve known Buscemi. as Mr. Pink, Steve Buscemi. Yeah. Of course, yeah. Yes. Who, I mean... Of course he's in this movie. Why wouldn't uh, he be in this movie? It's the mid-90s and it's an independent, quirky gangster film. So, yes. Yeah. Of course, the same thing with Christopher Walken. Sure. Same thing. Christopher Walken makes complete sense in this movie. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, and there's another Pulp Fiction connection. Well, a Pulp Fiction connection. Just Walken, in the sense that it's Christopher Walken. Yeah, I mean, like you've got Suicide Kings was another one that in this like time span where it was like Christopher Walken as a I don't mob know if I boss. I saw that one. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was like the same. I remember time as, the poster. It. Was, I remember it being around the same time as like Boondock Saints, and oh, okay. I feel like they were. It was kind of like an Armageddon Deep Impact type thing, but no, got it. Not really. Okay. There's that kind of ripoff uh, element here. The idea of. Uh, you know, the the kind of the quirky criminals coming together. Yeah, it's it's that Tarantino-esque vibe. The fact that he frequents a milk shop, uh, um, malt shop. Malt shop. Milt shop. Uh, milk. Jimmy the Saint frequents a malt shop and has his meetups in That's a malt their hang. shop. Yeah, and also Jack Warden's character, yes. who's essentially the one who kind of gives the exposition. He's just always there talking to some randos and- uh, we understand that he is connected with them because they give this uh, kind of like a handshaky high five where they put their hands together, which is explained that it's reminiscent of when they would be talking to each other from behind glass and, you know, touching each other's hands that way. And I really liked that element of yeah. the movie. Oh, yeah. there are a couple of... Uh, look, it's not it's not all bad. I actually... Really enjoy Treat Williams in this movie. Poor I one thought out. that Treat Williams was fantastic. Yes, Treat Williams is the highlight of this movie for me. His performance is tremendous. I, I also want to give a big shout out to Feruza Balk because her character, uh, Lucinda, you know, she is a sex worker who Jimmy has a, a fondness for, not in a romantic way, but he cares for her almost like a... a, a Father, daughter figure kind of a thing. Oh, see, I was going to say maybe brothers, big brother. Big brother. Yeah, I suppose that's more accurate uh, considering how things kind of end up towards the end because she wants his baby. But, you know, he looks after her and he's not checking in on her because, uh, you know, he disapproves of her lifestyle. He checks in on her because he's worried about her and he's not telling her, like, stop doing what you're doing. He's just trying to, like, be a shoulder for her. Mm hmm. And it's it's a really solid move. You know, he he's an admirable guy, despite the fact that he has he says some um, pretty rotten things sometimes. But that, I think, just goes with the the type of lifestyle he has. The type of life. Yeah. And, and just the vibe of this script. Yeah. So, yeah. So that and it, what we're getting to and then it co- coming to the Gabrielle Anwar character sure. Where Dagny. he's, it, it feels like them that, like you said before, they're working kind of like almost working backwards. Yeah. And it just feels like they were just like, all right, we need to set up a situation where 
this guy is there's a hit put out on him because he has to leave man with the plan sure after they yes. accidentally kill bernard so right <laughs> so josh charles who plays the the guy who's about he's he's going to be asking for uh this woman's parents permission to marry their daughter that's the reason why they're coming into denver right so uh meg is the name of the woman who bernard was in this relationship with meg is now uh pre-engaged to josh charles's character who you know his big scene is really fantastic he gets you know in quotes pulled over by these guys who I, i think they're just trying to scare him yeah like scare him off like there's i don't know exactly what their end game is with him that i watched it again right before we recorded just to like get some clarity on it and i was like no it's not really clear exactly what their plan is i think that's as clear as it gets is to scare him off and to make him want like nothing to do with her anymore yeah sure yeah yeah and i think that uh josh charles does an awesome job as kind of being this you know arrogant mouthy guy from LA who you know knows more than these dummies think he knows <laughs> he actually and he yeah he's he, he's calling he, them out he really does call them out on how <laughs> like the fact that they pull him over on the highway and they're and they're Denver Denver cops, yeah. they're in Denver cop police uniforms yeah he's like your, your uniforms don't really fit very well it's raining you should be wearing plastic coverings and you know government issued this this and that and it's Christopher Lloyd who doesn't really – I like Christopher Lloyd as sure. the aging gangster. Subdued, yeah. Who is just try, He's like there's no other real life for him. Like like his job is miserable. He's a projectionist in a porn theater. Maybe that's yeah. what the Bluebird Theater is. <laughs> um, and he's – when he finally meets his end, when Mr. Shush – yeah comes to visit him. It's one of those, it's a scene that, and like you said, there are some really nice qualities to this movie and there are some really strong scenes and you really do feel for Christopher Lloyd's character as he's accepting his fate and he knows what's going to happen. So after they botch this job, you know, Jimmy is brought to the man with the plan. The man with the plan basically says that, uh, I, I think that the term was, Oh man, it was like buckwheat or something buckwheat. like that. Buckwheat, buckwheat which yeah. essentially means that they're going to be killed in a very painful way. And uh, what Jimmy is doing then is he is trying to find ways to like save all of his buddies and get them out safely. And so for Bill Nunn's character, you know, he kind of gets him set up with these, you know, other people and you know, kind of puts him in a limo and and sends him on his way. For uh, Christopher Lloyd's character, he has tickets for, I think, like the Italian coast or something. And he's just like, just disappear. Live the rest of your life out there. You'll be fine. And he says, you know what? Thank you, but I'm I'm okay. And, uh, you know, I've lived a really great life and a really fascinating life. And you know what? If this is how it ends for me, this is how it ends for me. And it's a really admirable moment. I feel like I'm saying admirable a lot in this episode, but it's, you know, a moment where he's showing, you know, he's not going to run from his problems and 
good for him. Treat Williams' character, Critical Bill, on the <laughs> other hand, gets into real uh, depressing territory and is like holing up in this really nasty apartment. And uh, the less said about it, the better, I think. Yes. Yes, I I will say that another memorable scene, though, with uh, the the climax of that kind of sequence. Yeah, it's pretty intense. William Forsythe's character, if I remember correctly, you know, he has a family. He can't really disappear. And I think he may have been the first to have been found by Mr. Shush. I don't know, because they don't reveal it until later. Right, right, right. Yeah. That's that one we don't see happen. Yeah, that's right. Which I mean is probably for the best because you know he is the most admirable. If I'm going to use that word again, you know he's the the best of the group. Yes. Yeah, the one who really you don't want to see suffer. Right, and that well, and that's also what pushes Jimmy over the edge and like determined to gain a measure of of revenge. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'm a little confused. By it does Jimmy does he kill Bernard? I honestly don't remember. <laughs> um, because I think they, so. They imp- like it's imp- spoilers, by the way. Well, yeah, yeah, it's implied that he kills him, <laughs> but then I feel like there's something, like, there's some implication that he doesn't kill him. I feel I like that element of it is kind of neither here nor there. The real point of it is all about how he's going to uh, f- figure things out for himself. And especially now that he has brought Dagny into his life, how that is going to play out because the man of the plan is aware of Dagny and is like threatening to like completely just dis- like he knows so much about her. And, uh, you know, his plan is like, oh, I'm not just going to destroy your life. I'm going to destroy her life, too. And she, you know, they've gone on a few dates. You know, they spend a few nights together, but they're certainly not like in a relationship. She's practically she I mean, she gets engaged to some other dude. She's also engaged to be engaged. (laughs) She is also engaged to be engaged. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of that. It must be a Denver thing. Yeah. And, you know, Dagny. I don't remember if I've said this before. Also, one of my dogs is going completely bananas behind me. So if he starts barking, that's what that is. But I feel like her character, I I wish that there was more dimension to it. I wish that she had other things going on. We know that she's a ski instructor, but I wish that there were other things. Like, you know, when we first see her, she's kind of at a table with some other women. And so it's like, I'd love to see a scene with Dagny talking to some other women and, uh, getting to know more about who she is and what she's about outside of the fact that she's kind of with these two different guys trying to figure out what to do because there's, you know, she's her own person. I'm sure she would have other things going on. Yeah. No, she's very much written very two dimensionally just to be the beautiful object of Andy Garcia's affections. Yeah. She doesn't know what what to do, and it feels like the script was actually written where, like, maybe she didn't have a boyfriend, and then yeah. this, and then the s- screenwriter decided we need to give we need to make this more complicated. So this was written by Scott Rosenberg, 
who uh, this is his first feature. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he went on to write Beautiful Girls, Con Air, Disturbing Behavior, High Fidelity, Gone in 60 Seconds. Those That's in a row, by the yes. way. Uh, yeah. And then we've got some ones like Kangaroo Jack in there. And then, you know, he does. He's had some things recently that certainly people would know about. We just recently talked about Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, and Jumanji, The Next Level. He wrote those. He also wrote uh, the 2018 Tom Hardy Venom movie. Uh, allegedly, he did revisions on Armageddon, The General's Daughter, Domestic Disturbance, The 2002 Spider-Man, Runaway Jury, Pain and Gain. So he's dude's, accomplished. <laughs> dude's done a lot, but this is his first feature. Yeah, he has a very, he's an admirable career. Uh a real stand-up kind of writing career. Well, he, uh, I think one of his first things was an episode of The Twilight Zone, if I'm remembering correctly. Tales that, from the Crypt. Tales from the Crypt, that's what it was. I couldn't remember if it was like during one of the, the Twilight Zone like resurgences or something, but Tales, Tales from the Crypt. And I believe that uh, the the director of the film, Gary Fletter, is it? Fleeter? Fleeter? Gary Fleeter. I think that he directed it. So the the two of them, I believe, went to school together, and that's how they know each other. Yeah, and uh, Gary Fleeter also directed Runaway Jury, one of the films that mm. Scott Rosenberg has an uncredited yeah. rewrite on. Gary Fleeter also uh, directed Kiss the Girls, Don't Say a Word, Imposter, the aforementioned Runaway Jury, uh, Homefront, The Express. Imposter was also well adapted by Scott Rosenberg. Right. Yes. Yeah, so Gary Gary Fleeter. Oh, you know what? I thought. Oh, there was a different Grisham movie that I thought he did. Uh-huh. But I, no, Runaway Jury is is good stuff. That's Runaway Jury is great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, otherwise, Kiss the Girls, Don't Say a Word, kind of your uh, generic thrillers. Sure. Yeah, basic thrillers. Not not bad. Not great. I haven't seen Homefront. Which I I believe that's the one is it like Jason Statham I think I don't even and, know that one and uh, Justin Timberlake maybe is in that yes oh it was written by Sylvester Stallone Whoa. and oh James James Franco's the bad guy in that right it's Jason Statham James Franco Winona Ryder and Kate Bosworth I'm looking at the that. artwork now and it's so like America despite the fact that Jason Statham is the you know guy on the on the poster. Yes. Well, Two years after raiding a meth lab owned by biker gang boss Danny T, Phil Broker retires from the DEA. Jeez, I'm already like, we're not a writer. Hmm, maybe I will watch it. That it's that. <laughs> it. Uh, I like Jason Statham. So. Oh, I love Jason Statham, yeah. but there's there's something about those like really like America movies that I'm just like, huh, oh, boy. I didn't fight for this country and defend this country to come home and have my home threatened. I didn't move to this country. I didn't immigrate to, and then defend it. That's a bad Jason Statham. Sorry. <laughs> no, I thought that was actually pretty good. Yeah. Written by Sylvester Stallone. Uh, well, I, I've, yeah. I have a lot of Stallone on the brain. This uh, When this episode is released, this will have already happened, but uh, I'm I'm planning on a a TikTok video that will already have come out for the 30th anniversary of Demolition Man. So, Sweet. celebrating its legacy. Yes, be well, Lenina Huxley. <laughs> Demolition oh, Man, we've covered it. It's in the archives. Check it out. It's, yeah, May of 2019, I believe. 
It's there. Sure. Yeah, but no. I just year- looked up this information. Don't so. get me sidetracked on Demolition Man because very exciting about that, about the 30th anniversary of Demolition yeah. Man. Love Demolition Man. But things to Denver when, when you're dead is yeah. the movie we're talking sure. about. Sure. We also have a uh, a very young Jenny McCarthy as uh, the Man with the Plan's nurse. Who right. has like essentially no lines. She's just kind of there. It's an actual role, but you know, she's not there to, you know, forward she's, the plot. She's there to show that Christopher Walken's character is wealthy and chic enough to have a sexy nurse. Yeah, exactly. So I, I also just want to talk about a few other things that I liked. I there were certain moments where the cinematography I felt was was pretty stunning. There's the moment when they're at the Natural History Museum and there's this beautiful shot of of Jimmy and Dagny kind of like walking down and and they're kind of far from the camera, but the shot is just very beautiful and it's kind of a long a long take. And um that was kind of nice. I I also kind of like Jimmy's business that I that I talked about before, you know, where it's people who are nearing the end of their life kind of leaving messages for their family members. And uh, I suppose that that is really where like the title of the film is rooted. Uh, you know, it's not things to do in Denver and you're dead, but it's like, you know, just it, it's more embracing the the people who are at the end of their lives. You know, we have these people who are at the end of their lives and then we have Jimmy and his gang who are right. also at the end of their lives. And it's like, what what is the message that they're leaving for those who are in their lives? And for some of these people, it's absolutely nobody. And for Jimmy, honestly, it's Feruza Balk's character and it's Dagny. Right, well, Feruza Balk's character and his unborn child assuming assuming that that one time in the car sealed the deal yeah 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 so i don't know i um i'm trying to think if there's anything else that i particularly liked that i haven't mentioned yet no that was pretty much it but yeah i i really was hoping to get more out of this movie but ultimately after i watched it the first time I was just like, I just kind of want to watch Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, I. It's it's a a job that gets kind of botched, and you know the the results, the impending results. Oh, and and it's a much Reservoir Dogs is just a you know more streamlined, and we don't we don't need to. Well, but it's that's a a touchstone movie, not like yeah. a touchstone pictures movie, but it's a touchstone movie for this genre, this crime yes. genre, and it really changed the way that these movies were being made. And it you know, this was released by Miramax and technically it's not a major studio production and you know, we're 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 now fully into this wave of like the the independent like mid-budget film. Right. Which Reservoir Dogs was towards the beginning of that wave that you could say started in like the late 80s and then really in the early to mid-90s picked up. And then, yeah, by like 1994, uh, Miramax was basically like a, a... a practically a major studio. Oh yeah. I was, I was looking at the releases that they had and it was a mile long. 
You know, and by, yeah. by 1995, it was just like, wow, they've already, well, I mean, I know that there were some very early ones in the, in the 80s that were just like, well, I never even heard of these things before. So, you know, they took their time. They, they kind of figured things out. And by they, I do mean Harvey and Bob Weinstein, elephant in the room. Yeah. And the films that they produced. Yeah. They, they, they produced some very, very great movies that, Changed cinema. The, uh, Sex Lies and Videotape is sure. kind of acknowledges like the first big, quote unquote, indie hit. Yeah, My Left Foot. They right. They brought us My Left Foot. We covered My Left Foot not too long ago. Yeah, but Reservoir Dogs, right? Reservoir Dogs was really the first one of those movies that took the no- gangster noir films of the forties and fifties and put that contemporary ultra-violent, profane, pop-culture-quoting twist. Yeah, oh, totally. Onto it. Yeah. And then, of course, and I'm sure these movies, I'm sure things to do in Denver when you're dead, Two Days in the Valley, The Usual Suspects, that these were all conceived prior to Pulp Fiction's release in the fall of 1994. Right. But certainly, you know were released into its shadow. Yeah. And I don't mind. And I don't mind. I'm a big, another elephant in the room is Brian Singer, but I love oh, yeah. the usual. And, and Kevin Spacey. Uh, uh, usual suspects. I watched again recently and I'm like, this isn't as good as I remember it being. Oh, really? And yeah, it doesn't, doesn't hold up. Um, yeah. I don't know the last time that you tried watching it, but you know, take away the spacey of it all, and it's still, you know, a, a a bit of a challenge to watch. It it couldn't have been that long ago. I have very fond memory. I also saw that one in the theater. Sure. So I perhaps yeah. have a a bit more of a of a bias towards it. Perhaps, yeah. So I also want to mention that you know things to do in Denver when you're dead. For a long time, uh, and I, I don't know if, because these the, what, the other movie I'm about to mention came out a couple of years after it, I feel like in my mind, I kind of like connected these two, maybe because they have long titles and there's some sort of like, you know, criminal aspect to it. But uh, I would constantly associate things to do in Denver when you're dead with eight heads in a duffel bag. And, and I don't know if it was just like, you know, it's got Joe Pesci on the front wearing a suit and he's got a gun quirky gangsters quirky gangsters and i think that because eight heads in a duffel bag is this like kind of pseudo comedy i was expecting more of that from things to do in dead for when you're dead until i started watching it and i was like oh first scene out of (laughs) right out of the gate this is not what i thought it was going to be no but i think I, i i think it thinks it's funnier than it is Oh, a hundred percent. But those jokes are all about, you know, they're all homophobic jokes. Yes. Every yeah. single one of them. Right. And they're coming, and like you said earlier, it, it's less reflective of specific characters, more respect, more reflective of the film as a whole, because it those jokes are coming from different characters. Yeah. There's not one person, even Willie Garson, who plays, uh, you know, I guess it's Jimmy's like business partner, uh, you know, who is gay, is a gay character. And Jimmy even like is making gay jokes to his face and he's just kind of taking it. He's not being like, uh, 
go F yourself. That's not what this is about. You know, there's, I don't know. It's kind of just like allowing it to happen. Because that was, yeah, because uh, like that was, that was it. That was, that was the time. And if, if you, that was the, the risk of coming out because then even people who were your friends supposedly were still going to make those jokes and yeah. Yeah. What, what were you going to do about it? Like you tell your, your like, you know, only friend to fuck off. Yeah, pretty much. I guess. Uh, I don't know. I mean, yes, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, it's a different time. And I guess I, I'll, a, a little personal, uh, anecdote kind of here is Right now, I'm directing a high school production of The Laramie Project, mm-hmm. a play that is inspired by and was was written after Matthew Shepard's killing in 1998. For those who don't know, yeah. Matthew Shepard was a gay uh, college student at the University of Wyoming and was at a at a bar one night in Laramie and basically accepted the offer of a ride from these two guys yeah probably not under any pretenses but they drove him out to the middle of nowhere with the intention to rob him but they still they beat him within an inch of his life tied him to a fence and he left him there to die so i have been and i'm working with high school kids sure who, who were not alive then i'm also working with high school kids who grew up in seattle uh, yeah more liberal community, more open community and trying to get them to understand this, this element that if you were gay and if you came out, you were, you were going to have to put up with a lot of bullshit or, or just cut yourself off from anybody who would do that. So, which is not so easy to do when you don't have all the friends in the world and you don't live in a place where there's a a thriving gay community. So it was this uh, pressure and this, this thing that like you people had to, had to live with and felt that they had to accept. So giving just in giving my students an idea that this is just another aspect that now, especially here in Seattle, it would not be uncommon for the target of a homophobic joke or comment yeah. to really like fire back right. and you know, take take umbrage and express themselves <laughs> freely, which is not what's happening here. Because, like you said, even Willie Garson, his business partner, his friend, yeah. just kind of you know, just just takes it, just just accepts it because that's how it is but i digress sure i'm actually taking a look right now at an article in uh in outfront magazine that's kind of giving a it's called a brief lgbt history of colorado and in the 90s specifically there were a lot there was a lot going on to you know advance lgbt rights um you know, on a government level, but also in a more of a community level. And um, I'm only saying LGBT without the QIA plus 2S because that's just what they they have here on the website. That's, at, that <laughs> and was, at the time, at the that's time. what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So, um, you know, 
Denver also is considered a progressive, a more progressive city. Um, but also, you know, well, in the 1995, times, in, in yeah. 1995, it's still a very different scene than, you know, Seattle 2023. Well, right. And even, yeah, Seattle 1995 would have been probably, probably the same. <laughs> The same as what, like Denver? And Denver 95? probably yeah. is maybe a little bit more liberal, but yeah, I imagine you still could not live as openly, sure, yeah, as a gay person in 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 any city in 1995 compared to now. Yeah, and this movie, I doubt, did anything to help that, though it wasn't like it was a like landmark, monumental, like influential film 2001 a space odyssey this is not yeah and and i am curious maybe to to watch this movie again trying to see if there is a greater message that it's trying to say about gay culture and the life you know the lives of gay people because it is so present in the way that people are communicating with each other like the first thing that uh the man of the plan says to jimmy is asking him if he's gone gay, essentially, but he puts it in a very uh, uh, unsavory way, you know, referring, I think he's just like calling him like a virus chaser or something like that, referring to HIV and, uh, you know, getting into more graphic language, you know, and when we see Bill Nunn's character the first time, of course, he's, you know, uh, talking about um, Critical Bill and what, a fecal freak? Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that knowing that these are kind of the first things that we hear these people say to each other, that really stands out. And it makes me wonder, like, is there some sort of deeper message here that is maybe just not coming through in the way that it was intended? I don't know. I want to try to give it a, the benefit of the doubt, but I don't know. Maybe I, I, I admire your optimism. <laughs> I just like I was watch watching it for the first time in many years. Like I perhaps tried to watch it at some point, but like since 1995, I was I remembered even at the time feeling like eh, it was a little too. It was a it was a lot, and it wasn't funny. It was just mean. And there was no right because because and I think what would have made it what what adds the humor is when the odd a the audience is in on the joke. Yeah. But also when the the person expressing the hate gets a comeuppance or is kind of recognized as being a, a fool of yeah. or, uh, in, a, ignorant. But when you have. Andy Garcia supposed to be our sympathetic protagonist and he's making throwaway gay jokes. He's making throwaway gay jokes that I think that in the mind of the character are like, Hey, I'm a good guy because what I'm joking about are that gay people are good at design and copywriting and creativity and things like that because it's all about an ad for their business. And uh, he's like, I thought you thought you people were supposed to be good at this. And uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's one of those where you you, you think you're being complimentary. But yeah, abs- n- absolutely. No, 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 no. That's still stereotypes and those still are negative. I have a question for you. I meant to ask you, 
a, I have a question and it's more of a like, did you pick up on this or was I hearing things? But is there a, did you happen to pick up on a reference early on in the film to a gang called Los Locos? No, I did not. I am Short Circuit too? certain, yes, that there was a, a Are mention- they talking about beating somebody's ass or beating somebody's face? Uh, all over the place. Uh, uh, I Into outer space? Oh, right. That's that's what it is. I I can't quote Short Circuit 2 at will. Dan, I Old haven't age. seen Short Circuit 2 in... Uh, that one is well over 20 years. So anyway, I think there's a Los Locos reference We even covered... That was our first episode of this podcast of Short Circuit. I didn't even watch it for that. Yes. No, neither... Well, it wasn't streaming anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So I, I was just... I like I heard that and like of course you it, it sounds like such a stereotypical name for a yeah. Latino street gang. Huh. So Dan, I ask you, does your idea for resurrecting things you never when you're dead have to do with Los Locos? <laughs> no, no, it, it doesn't. <laughs> Not well. Then, well, then go on. Tell me what you would do. No, it has to do with another movie because, of course, Jimmy the Saint doesn't really die. He assumes a new identity, uh, moves to Las Vegas, and becomes Terry Benedict. Oh, oceans! <laughs> the oceans movies. It's what he looks like in the end. That little sequence at the end where they're all like on a, they're all on a, all the dead oh. gangsters are on a yacht. Yeah, yeah. That was a really bizarre ending of the movie where it's just like there you know this is the afterlife or the imagination of what these i, I don't know well it's kind of like yeah it's like the, it's it's like the end to trading places except, except it's imaginary right except in trading places it's there's a reason for it yeah <laughs> yeah truly uh, uh so okay all right what would i do with this so one of the first things you said today was it sounds like they 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 found the title and they worked yeah. backwards from that a series Okay. A series with the title Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. A series that that and look, I'm not this would not it would basically be a Fargo knockoff. Okay. <laughs> not as good. And you could have like a rotating cast of gangsters. You could bring back characters from this or it could really just be the title and it's just an anthology series or not an anthology series, a series about small time criminals in Denver, uh-huh. kind of do for Denver, maybe what Breaking Bad did for Albuquerque. <laughs> yeah, in a very, very weird way. Sure. And it, at the very least, it's an interesting title and people who are aware of the movie would at least potentially be curious about it. And those who aren't aware of it would potentially hear that name things to do in denver when you're dead oh that's interesting that's when is that streaming on netflix yeah i think that the pop well i don't know about the popularity but i would say that the the reason why maybe this movie comes up in conversation at all anymore is because uh, the title of it it has christopher walken and steve buscemi who everybody loves and that's all you really need i guess yeah it doesn't even this isn't even it's (laughs) It's not even like good Christopher Walken. No, it's interesting Christopher Walken. It's interesting Christopher Walken, but especially when if you're doing like a 1990s Christopher Walken film festival and you're watching Pulp Fiction and True Romance, 
Wayne's World 2. Wayne's World 2 and <laughs> The Prophecy. And then you watch this. Yeah, it definitely feels like he showed up for a week and, you know, collected his paycheck. He didn't even have to stand up. He did not. He couldn't. But in Pulp Fiction, he does most of his role in Pulp Fiction. He's got one scene in Pulp Fiction and he doesn't steal that movie, but he nails that monologue. It is so great. Well, it's a very well-written monologue and it's, you know, his delivery just nails it. It's, It's perfect for it. So... Right. We don't have to go into how amazing he is in uh so the, in pulp fiction. But. The point of the story here, if you get if you take one thing away from this episode, it's that pulp fiction and reservoir dogs are great movies. Yeah, pretty and much. Deserved to be knocked off. Uh not knocked off as in like a gangster or a hitman would do. Not like Mr. Shush would knock someone off. Yeah. But ripped off. So that's that's my take. Uh I was thinking I was toying around with the idea of like, oh, like a like a pulp novel. Would yeah. would be fun about the man with the plan, all these characters. Eh, give me a series. Give okay. me a series. You don't even have, you could set it in the nineties to pay mm-hmm. a little tribute and and be a little like nostalgic. But whatever. Give me a series. Things to do in Denver when you're dead. But don't feel like you need to adhere to this movie. Yeah. That's my take, John. What's yours? So not that I think this should happen. But if something were to happen, what I would find interesting would be a sequel that takes place all so many years later. And we have uh, Feruza Balk's daughter goes on Ancestry.com, 23andMe, finds out that she has a half-sister. And it is a baby that was conceived by Dagny and Jimmy. Because that could have happened. Wow, Jimmy the Saints got super sperm. <laughs> it's very virile. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, and so they find each other and they're trying to put together the pieces of like this person who uh, would be their biological father. And, uh, you know, perhaps Feruza Balk's child is aware of who her biological father was or his biological father. I is, I assigned it a, a gender. And uh, I think that, you know, taking these two people that come from very different lifestyles, because, it, you know, if Dagny, who was a ski instructor, especially if she married that game show host looking guy and went off and had a very normal life and then we have to imagine that Feruza Balk's character, you know, had to go through different struggles, uh, you know, especially as well, while raising this child by herself, presumably. Mm-hmm. So I think that the two of them together, you know, could could really open up the doors for something interesting. Now, we don't have uh, any other alive cast members. I don't think so. I'm <laughs> uh, because I imagine that. um I imagine that Jack Warden's character would be dead by now. <laughs> Certainly the malt shop guy is gone. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Uh or actually that I'm trying to remember that actor's name. He's 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 very good and he's in so many things. Bill Cobbs. Bill Cobbs, yes. Oh, you know who uh, Bill oh, Cobbs right. is still around, 89 years old. I was gonna say other like Bill, I know Bill Nunn passed. 
And Jack Warden passed. Jack Warden passed in 2006. Bill Nunn uh, in the last, I don't know, 10, 10 years. Something like that. But the rest Bill, of- Bill Nunn, who I remember most from uh, Regarding Henry. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say Sister Act, but now nah, Regarding Henry. Yep. Regarding Henry. Ritz. Ritz. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you still have, of the living characters, I, the man with the plan is still alive. <laughs> Presumably. Uh, you know, he's kind of... Uh, well, doesn't he... I feel like he said something about maybe being sick and not having much time, but that could just be like conflating it with something else. But also, you know, if in 1995... He was in the shape that he was in to be, you know, all these years later, kicking it fresh. I can't imagine. No, but I suppose there are there are if if we, if you really wanted to, if these two girls have to, if, if 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 all roads lead back to the man with the plan. Yeah, you could you could make it work where he was whether it's through like some stem cell treatments. Yeah, just like he if he had enough, if you have enough money. You can keep your sure. Alive. I mean, Christopher Walken. He's eighty. Uh, you know, I imagine he's still well, somewhat was, active. It was Severance. Oh, he's going to be in uh, Dune Part Two. Dune well, Part right. Two. Well, right. He was a, he was great in Severance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great show. He yeah. Uh, so yeah. Maybe it comes back to the man of the plan, and they get involved with something where. You know, because these are the kin of Jimmy the Saint, he's aware of who they are. And hey, maybe that's how they get linked back together. You could actually kick off a whole franchise with these two teaming up. You could potentially take things to do in Denver when you're dead, a uh, not a success. And, no, not at all. And turn it into something great. Hey, this uh, movie's got a... 37% Rotten Tomatoes score. <laughs> it's and, due. Well, I mean, yeah, you can only go up from there. <laughs> is that what it is? I Maybe I redeem, like, like redeem the fact that the, the, the female characters in this movie are very two-dimensional. One of them is just a hot ski instructor and the other one's a prostitute. Yeah, it is 37% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, were you just guessing? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Good guess. 72% audience score. So there's that. That's not for nothing. Uh, it, it must be that guy from Denver. Yeah. <laughs> Voting a lot. But no, 37%, that sounds about right. That's the type of, of score this movie should exactly. have. Yeah. Yeah. It's a 37%er. Ab- yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But Dan, I think that we're going to have some more interesting conversations about our next movie that we're covering ah yes our next stop on the road trip we're heading out east to the little town of mystic connecticut to enjoy some mystic pizza om nom nom yeah yeah movies from 1988 directed by donald petrie starring julia roberts lily taylor and beth gish and uh, there are other wonderful actors in it, and all respect to them. But those are our three yeah. three main main actors in this. Matt uh, Damon, right? Yes, Matt Damon in his is in very Mystic first Pizza. role. Yeah, way to go, Matt Damon. 
So yeah, no, we're going to talk about Mystic Pizza, and and may I say it'll be nice going for, uh, to a movie that I I would say treats its female characters with more respect. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Well, Dan, as you are fleeing, Mister Shush, I wish you a good journey. Good journey. 